Well, you guys excited to get in the Word together? Yeah. Amen. Well, good. Me too. Me too. Let me just say I am so thankful to have other pastors and elders in this church that gladly preach the Word. And um, I'm thankful that last week Judson uh, brought a great message and encouraged us with the truth that Christ is still working. That's good stuff, isn't it? Jesus is still working. And uh, he preached from Acts chapter 9, finished up the chapter, uh, just reiterating the truth that Jesus is alive and he is still at work. So a few of the things that we talked about uh, last week is that Jesus has the power over disability, uh, over our disease. We looked at with the, uh, the paralytic who had been paralyzed for eight years, um, that not even our weaknesses and our struggles like that have, uh, are, none of those things are a match for our king. We saw that Jesus has power over death. A little girl named Tabitha had died. They sent for Peter. Peter came and uh, followed in the example of Jesus. He, the Lord resurrected this little girl back from the dead. And what we see is that not even death is final for Jesus. That's good stuff, y'all. And then today in chapter 10, we're going to see that Jesus has the power over division. So I've titled this message, uh, Redrawing the Lines, Redrawing the Lines. And what we'll see again is Jesus has power over divisions, over distinctions. He reaches over and breaches through the dividing walls of hostility. That's uh, the wording that Paul uses in Ephesians 2, is that Christ is our peace and he has broken down the walls of hostility. So our racism is no match for his grace. Now, I realize when I say the word racism, I know that's a loaded word, especially in our culture today. It's a hot button topic. I didn't choose it. Uh, It's just in our text. Okay. Uh, If I were talking about divisions, I'd rather talk about Alabama versus Auburn kind of divisions. I would love to see some football uh, arguments, but we actually have some serious struggles in our society today. And there are, there are dividing lines that uh, we need to look at and talk about. But we're just going to talk straight from the Scripture. No opinions from me today, just truth from the Bible. So, um, we need to hear this. Our country is very divided right now. Amen? It's just the truth. It's not what we want. It's the truth. It seems like everywhere you turn, people are at odds with one another. There's political divisions. There's pandemic divisions, there's racial divisions, and we could go on and on and on with all of these divisions. What I want us to see and what we'll see in our text today is that Jesus Christ is redrawing the lines. Nineteen years ago this week, our nation endured one of the most tragic and deadly attacks ever. September the 11th, 2001, most of you probably recall the details of the moments when you heard and saw the the planes hit the World Trade Center in New York. I will never forget. Never again do I want to relive the panic of the days of September the 11th. But I do long for the peace and unity of September the 12th. It seemed like in the wake of such tragedy, 
Americans, like never before, came together and redrew the lines. It was like the things that divided us, the things that were insignificant, the the small stuff didn't matter anymore. It was no longer um, me against you and them. It was just us against evil. Well, the gospel of Jesus has even greater power than a tragedy to redraw our lines of division. Now, to be clear, there's all kinds of lines of distinction and division that we draw that are unhelpful and some of them even sinful. We draw lines based on the color of skin, on the language we speak, on the amount of money we have or don't have, on political views we hold, on opinions that we cling to strongly and are passionate about. When the lines get redrawn, we have clarity on who our enemy really is and who our Savior really is. I don't know if you realize it or not, but when we draw these lines of distinction, we put ourselves against one another. We tend to think that this person or that person is our enemy. But the Scripture teaches that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? Our battle is against the spiritual forces. So when Christ redraws the lines, he draws them where we have clarity over who the real enemy is. It's not you or me. We also, when we make these divisions and we divide and we we begin to be against one another, we get confused over who our savior is. We might think that if we elect this or that president, he'll be our savior. Or if we do this or that, we look horizontally for rescue. When we think our real problem is horizontal, we look horizontally for our rescue. But when Jesus redraws the lines, he says, no, your enemy is not one another. The enemy is a spiritual enemy. And the Savior is Christ and Christ alone. That's the reality and the truth of our text when we look at today. In Acts 10, God is redrawing the lines. And it's going to be a convicting message for Peter in the text and a saving message for Cornelius. This is a monumental moment for Peter and for the church of Jesus. God is showing that he's not just the God of the Jews. God is not an ethnic God. He's not just redeeming a particular people to himself from one ethnic origin. He wants to redeem people from all ethnicities on the planet. The scripture today, one of the key moments in the text is in verse 34. And I want you to hear these words because Peter confesses this as the very first part of his sermon to Cornelius. He says, I've learned that God shows no partiality. I want us to let that resonate on our hearts today as we read the text. Would you stand with me? Acts chapter 10. It's a a long passage today. Uh, We've been trucking our way through the book of Acts, uh, little nuggets at a time. And today we're actually going to tackle the whole chapter of of chapter 10. So uh, if... If you need to sit for 48 verses, we're going to read as quickly as we can. But if you need to sit, feel free to. Okay, but we want to stand in honor of God's word. So here's Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? 
And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among them, uh, from among those who had attended. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, eat, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision uh, that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, they stood at the gate and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging at the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore... We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. They were ready to receive a word. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. 
But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Lord, this is your word. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you teach us. That you expose us and lead us by your spirit into grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Long passage. Thank you for your patience as we read through that this morning. So in order to uh, really dig in and really understand this text and the implications of it, we need to know some historical and cultural context. I don't think we quite get all of the, the, the elements here. I don't know if you knew, but as we were reading through, Peter told them, uh, he said, you, you yourselves know it's unlawful for me to be here. I don't know if you knew that or not. So we're, we're going to dig in just for a moment into some of the history and culture. You know, the Jewish culture has cl- kept very clear lines drawn. Um, that's the, the reason for the title of the message today. The Jewish culture from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, has kept very clear lines drawn to keep Gentiles separate, Jew and everyone else. If a Gentile wanted to believe in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, if they wanted to believe in the Jewish God, they, they could, but they would need to be circumcised. And they would need to go through a series of ceremonially cleansing rituals. And even then, these new Gentile believers would be kept at a distance from God. There was only so close, only so far they could come. I want to show you a couple of images uh, of the temple. In in the days of Jesus, I don't know if you can see the the words here, but uh, the big... The big building in the top right corner is the the temple, the holy place of God. That would be where the priest would go in uh, and go into the holy place there. 
Just outside that, you've got perimeters, and just outside that is the court of priests. So only the priests, the, 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 the children of Aaron and, and Levi, would, only they would be allowed in that next little perimeter. Then there's a barrier and a gate, and there's an altar that those priests, before they can go into that court, they have to make certain ceremonial sacrifices. You get a little further away from the Holy of Holies and you see the court of Israel. This is the, the area where the Jews were allowed to be. And then there was a, another separation even within that where the women had to stay. The men and the women were kept separate. Jewish men could get closer to God. The Jewish women had to stay on the, on the outside of that little perimeter. And then outside that wall is what's called the court of Gentiles. I think I've got another image here, Sarah, that might make it a little clearer. Yeah, this is from, from a different angle. The very bottom right on the screen is the court of the Gentiles, this section out here. And separating the court of Gentiles from the temple is a five-foot wall. Now imagine, it's five feet tall. Now I'm six foot, so that's about right here on me. It's just enough of a wall to keep me from getting in and just high enough that I can see what's going on. Can you imagine what that kind of separation does to a person's psyche? It's like I can see all the joy and the beauty that you're experiencing in intimacy with God, but I can only come so close. I'm kept at a distance. In fact, along that fence, it was called a uh, what's the word? balustrade. It's called a balustrade. And along that fence, they had these inscriptions carved out of stone that were mounted on that stone wall fence. And here's what the inscription looks like. We should have an image of that as well. Yeah, maybe you can. I don't know if you can read that. <laughs> yeah, I know you can't read it. But here's what it says. It says, foreigners and Gentiles must not enter inside the balustrade, the fence, or into the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. This was pretty strict separation. These are pretty strong dividing lines. And the, these lines, make no mistake, are on racial um, boundaries. They're, they're ethnic. The Jews wanted to maintain ethnic purity. And it's, that's not all um, their fault. Some of that was what God had instructed them to do. You know, the Jews had the moral law, they had the civil law, and they had ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws is what kept them distinctly different. Those laws included, now there were lots of them, you know, like you can't wear certain garments with mixed threads. You can't do this. You can't do that. Um, if this happens, you have to sacrifice this animal. All those kinds of ceremonial laws. But among them, some of the most prominent ceremonial laws were what you could and could not eat. What you could and could not eat. So I want us to make the connection now with the vision that Peter receives. Do you notice it's mentioned three times in our text who Peter is staying with? Does anybody remember Simon is staying with who? Simon the what? Tanner. The tanner. You know what a tanner is? What's a tanner do? Somebody know? Makes leather, Makes leather out of what? Animal skins. Did you know that 
death and the killing, slaughtering of animal is also an unclean thing. But look at what God has been doing with Peter. He's got him at the house of Simon the Tanner. He's probably smelling all these smells like a barbecue pit. And he's gone up on the roof to pray. And the Lord gives him a vision about food. But it's much deeper than food. It's dealing with one of the central issues of the ceremonial law that draws a dividing line between the Jew and the Gentile. The Jews are not allowed to eat these things. The Gentiles can eat all they want. This separation wasn't just in their food or in the worship in the temple. It was in every aspect of life. Jews were forbidden to sit and visit with Gentiles. They were especially not allowed to have meals with them. There was a sense of superiority that the Jews held over Gentiles. They even, you may remember this in the scripture, but they even referred to them as dogs. The lines were clearly drawn. Now, in Acts chapter 10, I want us to see some gospel truth of God redrawing the lines. So look with me, if you will. The first truth I want us to get and and come away with today is the gospel of grace is greater than the weight of law keeping. Now, that's a that's a thick statement. I'm going to unpack it for you. But the gospel of grace is greater than is better than the weight of law keeping. When Peter gets this vision from God of a sheep coming down and all these strange animals that he's never eaten before. And the voice from God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I I feel like Ed is writing down a quote for his hunting days, right? (laughs) This is going to be a good one. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter's response to that in verse 14 is by no means, Lord. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, what I want us to see here is that Peter's holding on to what he thought made him holy. He's got a grip on this ceremonial law that he thinks keeps him pure, keeps him right with God. Peter believed his adherence to Jewish customs and ceremonial laws is what kept him Holy or made him righteous. And in this moment, Jesus is pushing two boundaries. He's pushing Peter's internal compass for what makes him righteous. And he's pushing his external mission. Where are you going to be willing to go with this gospel? Two boundaries are being pushed on with Peter. Internally, what is it that makes you holy? Is it how well you abide by all the Jewish customary laws? And are you willing to go to the one who doesn't abide by any of those laws? Makes me think of a question. So I want to ask you, what makes men holy? The Jew would say, God makes men holy 
through obedience. But the gospel says God makes men holy through obedience. But the the distinction is this. Whose obedience? The Jew would say, God makes me holy through my obedience. And the gospel says, God makes you holy through Christ's obedience. It's a massive distinction. The weight of the law is no longer on you. You're not under law, you're under grace because Christ has perfectly fulfilled every detail of the law. And so your righteousness is not through your ability to keep it or maintain it. Your righteousness comes solely through Christ. The beauty of the gospel is that we are made righteous through the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Our sin became his so that his righteousness could become ours. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God in Christ. This is the gospel, but it's a, it's a subtle distinction that is very real. That Peter is struggling to believe. And you and I struggle to believe as well. We tend to slip almost every day back into a, a mode of thinking, well, Christ makes me whole, God makes me holy, but I've got I've I've to maintain, I've got I've to, I've got and we take on ourselves a load we're not meant to bear. Christ has set us free. Jesus said that. He who is free, the sun sets free, is what? Free indeed. That's a powerful gospel truth. And here's what we're saying is that grace is better than law. Grace is better than law. Peter's learning this reality, even though Jesus taught it to the guys back in Mark 7. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus taught them uh, that it's not what you eat or drink that defiles you. He said it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of your mouth defiles you. They didn't quite understand what he was saying. So he said, let me, let me break it down for you guys. You'll not be made holy by not eating or not drinking certain things that you think are unclean. Abstaining from eating or drinking doesn't make you holy. You are already unholy. That's the gospel message that Tucker was alluding to earlier. The problem is, is, is not... There's ugliness out there and I have to protect myself from ugliness out there. The gospel says this. The ugliness is in here. It's your heart that defiles you. What comes out of your mouth exposes the darkness and brokenness of your heart. And translation, what Jesus is saying is you're already defiled. Your adherence to the law can't fix you. Only Jesus can. You need a new heart. Or like he said to Nicodemus, unless you be born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, you think you're a great guy. You're a teacher of the law. You are you are on your P's and Q's, but you're going to hell because you've not entrusted your heart to Jesus. You think you can work your way and earn your way into God's favor and you cannot. 
Only Jesus can do that. Romans 3. Church, I want to ask you, what do you believe makes you righteous? Do you really think it's your own good works? Are you looking to the law to justify you? Do you look at others and think, I'm glad I'm not like them. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector, how they prayed differently? The tax collector hung his head and said, Lord, I don't deserve to be in your presence. And the Pharisee said, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like him. That's what the law does to us. It divides. Grace brings us together. If you're looking to the law to justify you, Romans 3, 10 is going to burst your bubble. It says there is none righteous, no, not one. But if you keep reading in Romans 3, there's the best news ever. Romans 3, 21 and 22. It says there is now a righteousness apart from the law. By faith in Jesus Christ, there is no distinction. Listen to that reality. There is a righteousness apart from the law. And it comes to us by faith in Jesus Christ. And then I love the phrase, there is no distinction. This is what Peter's learning. He's learning that his keeping of the law is not what keeps him holy. It was Christ's keeping of the law and Christ's atoning sacrifice that makes men holy. So church, look to Christ. It's only by grace through faith in Jesus that men are made holy. So Peter is exposed for his unbelief. That leads us to a second great truth from this text. Jesus exposes sin and expects action. Jesus exposes sin and expects action. I want you to catch the similarity in the commands that come to to Peter from the Spirit. In verse 13, the Spirit says to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat in the vision. And Peter's like, No, Lord, by no means. I would never do that. Seven verses later, the Spirit speaks to him again and says, Rise, Peter, and go down and accompany these men without hesitation. We should connect the dots just like Peter did. The vision wasn't primarily about food, even though it was. It was about food so much as it was about redrawing lines for Peter. And God was doing a work to expose Peter's wrong thinking and wrong behaving. Peter's prejudices are exposed. He's beginning to see that the vision wasn't just about food. And being clean and unclean. It's about people. That's what he says in verses 28 and 29. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for me to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Peter's connecting some dots here. Jesus is exposing his sin And expecting action. Anytime God exposes our wrong. 
our wrong thinking, our wrong behaving. Anytime he exposes and brings that to the light, let me tell you something. It's not just so you'll know something. It's so you'll do something. He wants action. And so today, if God teaches you truth, it's not just to fill your mind. It's to change your life. God is working to complete what he started in you. That's a great promise in Philippians 1, 6. He says that he will bring to completion the work that he begun in you. He will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is working to let the gospel have its full effect of sanctification in the heart of every believer. So in Peter, the gospel is making significant changes. I'm just going to walk through these quickly. What do we see that's significant here? Well, Peter invites Gentiles in to be his guests in the home of Simon the Tanner, who is slaughtering animals every day. This is breaking down some barriers for Peter. And he's welcoming it. You notice when they came to see him, they stood at the gate. They wouldn't come any further. They knew where the lines were. Peter came down to see them. And he knew the spirit had said, I've sent three men. They're here to visit with you. Peter heard that. He came down and he was like, I'm not going to let this little gate keep us apart. You guys come in. That was a big move. Then what does he do? Well, they spend the night... He welcomes, welcomes them to stay overnight. Then he travels with Gentiles to be the guest of a Gentile. These are big barriers that Peter knows he shouldn't be crossing. But he's crossing them because God is redrawing his lines. He humbly speaks, affirming truth that's contrary to what he believed yesterday. Yesterday, he would have said, you know, Jew and Gentile, we should keep our distance. We, we should... We should do things separately. But now he says, I have learned I should not call any person common or unclean. And then he says, God shows no partiality. That is an earth shattering statement from a Jew. Who would say the the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob has chosen for himself the people of Israel. And now he says. This God shows no partiality. This is radical. Peter preaches the gospel to a house full of Gentiles with the offer of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's probably one of the most anti-racist things he could ever do. To take the gospel to a different people group. And then to have the audacity to baptize them. Now, that doesn't have the weight of significance for us. I don't think that it did for them. But just so you know, the act of baptism was a welcoming into the fold. So when Peter at the end of this passage says, is anybody here going to withhold water from these people that God has obviously poured his spirit upon? Anybody going to say no to the ones that God has said yes to? Anybody want to do that? Okay, let's baptize This is a massive reality where Peter realizes God is doing something and he's not going to stand in the way. Do you realize that Peter has just welcomed in the most estranged people into the most inner circle he's ever known? The the images of the temple we saw earlier, 
At Jesus Christ's death on the cross, something powerful happened in that temple that hadn't quite gotten through to the heart of Peter. It hadn't penetrated enough to affect the way he shared the gospel and who he led into his life. And the great reality that happened in the temple when Jesus died on the cross was what? The veil. The temple curtain that separated God from man and man from man was torn from top to bottom, from God to man. He tore the veil so as to say there is no one who is not welcome here. Through the blood of Jesus, you are welcomed into the presence and the people of God. These are not minor adjustments to Peter's life. These are major changes. God had adopted in a people as his children through salvation. And now Peter is accepting them as his family through baptism. God adopts. We accept. Jesus exposed Peter and expected action. Peter changed. He was so gripped by grace that he could no longer withhold it. That's what law does, is it draws lines of division. Grace welcomes people in. It gives clarity to who our real enemy is and who the one and only Savior is. Third big truth I want us to take away today is this. The gospel of Jesus crushes racism. The gospel of Jesus crushes racism. Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He begins his sermon today. I understand God shows no partiality. God's been grooming Peter for this moment. With Philip and the Samaritans. Peter was there. Laid his hands on those men and women who believed in the spirit of God fell on them. And Peter, mind blown. He left that day preaching the gospel to other Samaritan villages. That was a new thing. Then Peter goes to Joppa. He's called there to visit with a dead girl. Dead bodies, FYI, are unclean. Peter shouldn't be going in a room with a dead body. But he follows the example of Jesus who redraws the lines. And Jesus raises her to life. He stays with Simon the tanner who works with unclean animals every day. He has a vision of a sheet with animals. Three times the Lord corrects his heart to say, kill and eat, kill and eat. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. God's been grooming him for this moment. And now Peter goes to Cornelius. God put the perfect Gentile in Peter's path to make this change. Think about it for a minute. If Peter had gone to meet with a man who was an absolute reprobate, just hateful, total, uh, it might have been another Jonah type moment where Peter might go and preach and then walk away hoping the man uh, rejects. But Peter meets Cornelius. 
God has sovereignly worked this moment out. Cornelius is a devout man, a God-fearing man. He gave generously. He prayed continually. He even had an angelic visit while he's praying. So the only ground Peter had to stand on to reject him or call him unclean was ethnic. He couldn't look at his life. This man didn't even act like a pagan. He didn't speak like a pagan. He was humble. He was respectful. He was honorable. He was a man who led people. The only ground Peter might have had to stand on was ethnic. And God said, I've set you up, Peter. Are you going to reject him just because he's not like you? Jesus crushes racism. The roots of Racial prejudice had a grip on Peter's heart. But Jesus has a better grip. You know, after September the 11th, there was a lot of unity in our country. People weren't as concerned about skin color or politics. We were united. But we were united against the wrong enemy. Our unity was forged in hatred for people not like us. Bear with me for a moment. I'm not advocating that we don't enact justice against evildoers. But listen, I remember, I remember I was a college student when 9-11 happened. And I remember the, the amount of racial hatred toward Pakistani and Afghan people. I remember... Any person with a turban was a target. I remember the fear and hatred toward Muslims. Some of that still exists to this day. Racism is a problem. And not just 19 years ago. Earlier this year when the coronavirus first began to spread, there was a spike in racism toward Chinese Americans. Because the virus originated in China and it wasn't contained there. There was ethnic hatred. There have been some recent incidences that have brought the pot of racism to a boiling point between police and the black community. So what do we have to say? What should we do about it? Well, I don't want to oversimplify what is a very complex issue. I want to state just the truth from Scripture. And so here it is. God shows no partiality. So we should not either. Jesus' biological family didn't even get special treatment from Jesus. Do you remember in the middle of his teaching, somebody came and said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're, they're waiting for you out there. And he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Those who hear and obey the word are my mother and my brothers. There's no preferential treatment with God. There should not be with us. God wants every race, and I use that word liberally. What I really mean is ethnic group. The truth is, there's one race. I hope you know that. The human race. God created the human race. From Adam and Eve, we all go back to that point. However, God also did establish ethnicities with many distinctions. 
So when I say race, what I mean is ethnic people group. God wants every ethnic people group to hear and believe the gospel. Tuck, bring me that other mic, will you? Everyone in every nation who hears the gospel and believes is forgiven of sin and receives the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again just so you hear it. This is at the end of Peter's message and here's what he says. Verse 43, Peter says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone, I'm sure that's the word that's sitting heavy on Peter, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Here's the reality of the text. Every people group on the planet who hear the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ, the grace of Christ, is forgiven of sin and receives the Holy Spirit. God is redrawing the lines. What he's saying is there's no division any longer between you or them. We could, we could read, in fact, what he says, what Paul says later. He says there is no longer any distinction. Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Those things are gone. We have a new covenant and it's in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, God is building his kingdom. And it's a multi-ethnic, multi-colored kingdom. When we look to the future and we see what God is doing that we're a part of today, we see that God is building the kingdom from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and every people group. That's what God is doing. So if we're going to join him to see that come to be, there's no place in our world for any kind of racism. Amen? Amen. There's no place. So just as Peter had to acknowledge a reality in his own heart, reject it, and pursue some change, so must we. So here's a few takeaways for you today, just quickly. And this is how I close. Just three quick takeaways. It is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that makes men holy. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that makes men holy. So if you are a follower of Jesus today, rest on his obedience, not your own. Secondly, when God exposes an issue in your life, get serious about taking action. Don't wait around. Don't beat around the bush. Don't don't just be inwardly perplexed as Peter was thinking about this whole thing. Make changes. Walk in the truth that Jesus reveals. Lastly, we reject racism by taking the gospel to all peoples. Let me tell you something. The most anti-racist thing you can do is obey the Great Commission. Listen to what Jesus said. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of who? All the nations. That word nations is not geopolitical. It's the word ethnos, which is ethnicity. All the peoples. Make disciples of all peoples. You know what will happen, church, if we do that? If we, just for example, 
go to JSU and begin a ministry with the International House at Jackson State University. And we see those students come to faith in Christ who are here from all over the world. If they come to faith in Christ and are baptized into our fellowship, do you think that will impact the dynamic of our church? We're talking about 100 students from all over the world that are coming into our church because they've been made disciples of Jesus. Do you think that will impact the dynamic and the culture of Mountain View Church? Do you think it would put a stop to some racist tendencies? The most anti-racist thing we can do is obey the Great Commission. And make disciples of all the nations. Peter realizes that. The moment he realizes God is breaking boundaries and redrawing lines. He preaches the gospel of Jesus. He baptizes them into the family. And church, we must do the same. We must be a people who are for all the people.